Hey, First Strike listeners, this is KYT, recording after the fact. Just wanted to apologize because after listening to the recording, I was really unhappy with my side of the audio. The three other guys sound perfectly fine, but I was disappointed on the quality my, my mic was producing. And this is something that I'm actively looking to improve before the next episode. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Now, with that, got to mention my sponsor, facefacegames.com, the number one place to get your Magic the Gathering singles. And this week's special was 15%, up to 50% off select Commander singles. And with that, enjoy the show. Uh, yeah, I had uh, some tooth problems. I had to get a tooth removed and had like a lot of major tooth pain. So I had to miss a couple weeks because like, uh, a lot of talking would uh, irritate it a lot. So I'm glad to be back, that's for sure. Let's let's uh I guess let's get started with with uh, the spoiler card that I unveiled uh, today. Usually I'm there. It's been some up and downs, and, and I don't know if how Watsi decides which spoiler card to give me. Of course, there's there's been a string of land destruction spells uh, because of mana deprived. The site I started ages ago, but then mana deprived got absorbed by face to face games, and I was still getting land destruction spells like sinkhole um, and Stone Rain or Molten Rain, stuff like that. That's That's been the cards that I've been getting. And today was interesting. Got a land that uh, was a rare land called Fabled Passage. Not that exciting at first glance, but when, when I think about it and look at it, it it's, it's an upgraded, it's um, evol- Evolving Wilds on Drugs, or Termorphic Expense on Drugs. And I think it's going to obviously see a lot of play in Standard. Is it something to be super excited about? Maybe not, but a lot of players are excited to put it in their decks uh, in, in different formats. Um, what about you guys? What, what do you, any thoughts on Fabled Passage that, that uh, you want to unleash to our listeners? Yeah, I think uh, I actually think it's pretty good. So the mana in Standard is going to be pretty bad, and uh, any kind of dual land, uh, its value goes up a lot, especially when it fetches like a basic land type which is going to matter a lot for a lot of the decks that are coming out because there's like if an if you have an island this comes into play untapped and so on and so forth. And uh what it does so if it's in your opening hand it functions just like an evolving wilds, which is like not not the best land to be playing in your constructed deck, but it's like not embarrassing depending on the context of standard. But uh if when you top deck it late, it's just just a very good land. And like when you have it there's also like enter the battlefield for lands matter sometimes with like a uh, field of the dead. Cause I think that card's still going to be super played uh, even when escape to shift is gone because of Golos and like this kind of stuff you can do with that. So I think there's a lot of implications for this card. I do think it's going to see play in standard. Uh, I'm not sure like what the numbers are, but like, I think it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good land. Not bad for us. Yeah, I was really impressed with this card. I think the the biggest drawback to playing tap lands, Andy kind of alluded to this, is that um, you really want to play your like four drop or five drop on time, and you're kind of stuck on lands. And if you draw a tap land in that scenario, that just feels like the worst feeling in the world. It's like, God, why did I put this card in my deck? But um, this, you know, totally gets around that. And like usually, if it's in your opening hands, you're going to be able to kind of sequence it in in such a way that having the tap land sort of doesn't doesn't hurt you too much and then you know in the mid to late game obviously it's just like a five color dual land so i think this card's pretty good it's kind of i'm not sure you want like four of them you probably just do honestly but um yeah i'm really impressed i think it's gonna be good 
Yeah, an interesting uh, like contextual piece for standard is like, so think of the fast lands. The fast lands were played in a format where like the four drops really mattered a lot, like uh, Chandra Torture Defiance and uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor. So like while they were incredibly powerful, their drawback uh, mattered quite a bit. So like if this is a standard where like your four drop like can help you take over the game or your five drop can take over the game, like having land five untapped for a wrath or that kind of thing. I think that stuff is like super important if like the higher mana cost cards in your deck are like some of the most important ones. So I think uh, like sometimes this kind of stuff like fast lands have a drawback and this has a drawback too, but sometimes like this will be even better. John, Johnny, thoughts on this card? On our land. <laughs> I think I think um I think our guys uh, covered it mostly here. I was a bit unimpressed at first, but just after thinking about it in in the context, because you can't, you magic you really can't look at everything in the vacuum. Um, uh, with the with the check lands like rotating out, like a lot of the Twitter verse was uh, lamenting uh, the fact that you know it might even be hard to build a two color deck. So just uh, having having this option uh, even. Uh, uh, evolving wild with an upside, so I think it's pretty good. It also depends on the texture of the uh, the, the pace of the format, of, uh, obviously, and what you want to be doing. And it could, there could be with, with four four sets rotating out and four sets remaining. Um, it could be that um, actually uh, the fundamental turning standard is like much much bigger. So this is not going to be you're not going to be punished at all um, if there's not going to be a lot of like white and red aggro such that you know you you have these things like coming to play tap. You don't need to be immediately uh, tapping uh, having like three mana open on turn three for like the uh, hero's downfall card, for example. So uh, I, I would I would think that this would actually be a pretty good carding standard and it'll see a fair bit of play. That's my uh, initial uh, assessment. Sweet, sweet. Uh, when, when I got to work today, uh, some of my colleagues were really excited about this card that was spoiled before I unleashed the, the video on Fable Passage. They were really hyped about Brazen Borrower, which is triple three cost, uh, three one triple uh, triple cost three <laughs> three mana, double blue one colorless three one flying flash. Brazen Borrower can block only creatures with flying. It's fairy rogue with instant adventure, petty theft, which is one blue one colorless return target non-land permanent and opponent controls to its owner's hand. So the adventure part is a bounce spell, and it itself is a three one. Flash flying for three. Are, are are you guys hyped about this card? No, seeing yeah, no. <laughs> no, I think this card's great. Like, uh, so one of the most important things, like, so people are talking a lot about like there being a blue green flash deck, and I would say one of the most important things uh, for those kind of decks are options, so that you can like off put whatever your opponent's doing, uh, just depending on the context of the game. And what this card is, is like a reasonable body. It attacks for three. That's quite a bit. And the fact that you can curve the petty theft into the the three drop is just so powerful. It's like the same with the, the giant in red. Like that's just kind of outrageous, right? That you get to do both. And I think, uh, yeah, I think the card's pretty good. A 3-1 flyer, I think it's priced accordingly. Like they must think it's powerful if it's a mythic, right? Yeah, I think so too. Um, John? John not... Not too hyped? I think in abstract, it's very nice to have the back half of this. Like Echoing Truth has seen a lot of uh, play in a lot of combo decks uh, in Eternal, just uh, strictly speaking, Eternal uh, point of view here. Um, the question is, like, the 
if, if, if this card is supposed to be good, you need both halves of the uh, card to be good for a certain archetype. And certainly, I don't think it is for uh, combo, for example, where Echoing Truth and like Channel Vapor have uh, traditionally seen play as a flexible answer to hate bears. Where, uh, but if you do have have that in your combo deck, for example, like the back half isn't going to do anything. However, in like uh, like mono blue Delver or like blue or Delver, any sort of like a uh, Delver or a Temple Shell, for example, this actually seems. Uh, pretty pretty excellent to me. The fact that it curves out uh, like this is very good. Um, so uh, I, I think it has potential, but you need to be pretty selective about um, where you play it, I think, because you need both of these cards to be good, um, or otherwise, like, individually, these cards by themselves are not great rates, right? So it has to work together and be congruent with your uh, game uh, plan A. I think uh, Justin Richardson, uh, famous for being a... Uh a negative, I don't know what the word is, negative Nancy, what, negative verse evaluator um, in the Facebook chat saying that this card sucks. So um, we'll see. We'll see uh, how this plays out. Uh, let's switch it up. Uh, we're going to talk about some, some new cards these guys love uh, a, a bit later in the show, but a topic that uh, you know, people were able to want, were passionate about in replying was about streaming, this tweet that I made, I, I listened to my favorite poker podcast, is the Poker Life podcast by Joey Ingram, just some guy that decided to um, be the, the first and basically the only one to seek out the most elite and high stakes, most degen poker players in the world to get on a show and, and very uncensored, which is why I think a lot of these guys are comfortable uh, people that jump on his show, even though it's not exactly the most professionally done it's very much off the cuff do a lot of very immature jokes are in that show as well uh, but I love it because again he brings in world-class players and world-class coach and, and Doug Polk is considered one of the best poker players or, or heads-up players of all time uh, I'm sure John you, you've you've known about some of this history so very well respected he went from dominating in poker, being the best heads-up player in the world, to dominating the YouTube space in poker. And at some point, he dabbled with streaming and did did okay in that, did okay, but he decided to... Uh, it was incredible to get his perspective because he actually put in the grind. He actually tried to do the schedule, uh, whether it be like a bunch of tournaments or, or put a lot of hours in. And he viewed it as it being super hard to get to the top because it's a very um, competitive thing where if you're not really established as one of the top streamers, it's going to be really tough to get up there, um, especially when, you know, people jump on Twitch, they browse through the games, they select by category, they go to Magic the Gathering, and if you're not one of the first five, how are you going to get up there? And he put in the challenge up there and, and how... In, in poker, some streamers, some of the biggest streamers he felt like have thought it was miserable over time. It became a chore. It became work to fit that schedule, to go to, from 9 to 5 or wake up at 10.30 exact time every day to put in that grind. And he thought it was exhausting. But then the counter to that is that him, he's like this millionaire, multi-millionaire, and he's comparing streaming to... 
know, something else he could be doing, which is like making YouTube videos or, or stuff that he enjoys a lot more. Whereas someone like Semulin, a, a friend of mine who is, who transitioned from being a salesperson to now a full-time Magic Arena or Dota Underlord streamer, he loves it because comparatively, streaming is way better than what he had before. He, he hated his salesman job. So um, David Rude brought that up. He said like, it, it's, you know, it's easy to say it from Doug Polk's perspective, tougher to say from everyday people like, like me and you, John. Uh, the pros and cons of streaming, but uh, what, did you take away anything from that video clip that I made? Yeah, so uh, it's it's a lot relatable because I, I had considered like going like semi-pro or pro, like for those who, did, who didn't know, like I used to play, uh, grind a lot of poker, for example, and uh, I, ne I, ne I never went uh, pro because I thought like my, my skills and experience were better served to do something, uh, something like feel like this, where I can add value and all that. But like, uh, so for people that thinks like streaming is, like, I think streamers uh, provide considerable value in terms of uh, entertainment and just having something that people can uh, come back to and watch and entertain and inform as well. So um, I, I do respect a lot of the streamers that does this for a living. Um, but I basically do agree with a lot of the um, points that uh, most of the points that Joey and uh, uh, Doug ha Doug said in that clip. Um, I, I think that it's really hard, especially given the MPL has like really saturated the field. And I understand that it's like uh, it's like a dream for a lot of people, and it sounds great. And I don't want people, I don't want to uh, discourage people from following their dreams, but. It, it, like pragmatically speaking, it's just really hard to make it right now. Like, it, you, it's so hard to differentiate yourself, especially considering like a lot of people have the first mover advantage, like Hooglin and uh, uh, Caleb Durward, for example. And it's just hard. But um, your friend Semulin's also correct in saying that you can't look at it in a vacuum because your alternative could have been a shitty, shitty, miserable day job. And if this makes you happy and if you can make end, ends meet, then great. But I think like. Like uh, first and foremost, and that, I think that's that's what Doug and uh, Joey are trying to say is like you gotta be like objective and pragmatic about your aspirations, and just you gotta know your limitations. But I, I think it's cool in 2019 that you can at least entertain the idea of going pro, doing this, entertaining other people, etc. So times have changed, man. But yeah, I feel old. But yeah. <laughs> this topic came came up to me because not not only did I tweet about it, but but Tangrams, you, you had mentioned how you missed Misplaced Ginger's stream. Of course, now with the MPL, he'd be, you know, where he, at some point I would jump in and he might even be like in the top five zone. And, and now with, with the competition and everything, I think it, it would be a struggle to see him anywhere in, in the top few rows unless he picked a specific good time to, to stream. Not that he's not a, not a good streamer. It's just that it's, it's just a lot of competition. But, but you love this stream, David? Would I love this stream? Um... No, no, no. You loved his stream, Dave? Oh, I love Ginger's stream. Yeah. yeah. No, I think I really liked his stream, and I think I'm not so sure. I think streaming is kind of a like a very interesting form of content production in that, like, you say, like, oh, obviously, you know, I could never compete with these MPL people, but it's like all the MPL people, the only advantage they have is that they're like much better at playing Magic the Gathering than you or I. And I don't think that's necessarily what people want when they're they're tuning into a stream. Like I mean 
I don't know. I'm kind of an exception. When I watch streams, I'm like trying to learn and get better at magic, but I recognize that that's kind of the minority. Most people are just like looking to hang out, like watch a cool deck, maybe like post some, you know, funny emotes in the chat and just kind of like be entertained. It's like watching like a TV show, basically. So do you, if you're just kind of watching your TV show, do you mind if it's, you know, like, um, you know, the MPL, like, top five player in the world, or Derek Misplaced Ginger, who's, like, you know, pretty good. He's probably, like, top, you know, at least top a 1,000, certainly, probably much higher than that in the world. Is there, like, really watching that? Like, uh, is his, like, play skill so much worse that it's going to, like, detract from the entertainment experience for you? Like, probably not. And if I could choose between watching Misplaced Ginger or just some, like, random... MPL streamer who's like you know doesn't have that kind of brand of humor that Derek has <laughs> I would I would watch Derek every time because he's he's damn funny so <laughs> if you're listening to this please start streaming again I will watch again I, I had a private call with, with Mike Flores who I mean has been cocky since I met him since I've ever heard of him and uh but I had to agree with him when he's like if if people had to watch between him and someone that's way better than him but more boring, you know that's we're in a landscape where where people like 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 you said, it, it's not really play skill. Um, you know, some people go with Ben Stark, who's not only good but also great at explaining things. He like fits the click can can check both boxes, and uh, but but you're right. Some some of the top players are just not a streaming personality to be able to uh, gain all these followers. Um, but you're right about that. It's, you don't need to be at the top, and you could compete against them on a different axis. But um, I guess John is also, and I are just saying that there's also a lot of people that are attacking it from, from the other angles as well. Um, Andy, I think this topic came up a few episodes ago where, where I asked you uh, if you'd be streaming again, and this topic came up, and, and you agreed that it was pretty tough and miserable for you <laughs> if you did it for a long run. Yeah, it was, uh, it was too hard to do like streaming and something else which sounds ridiculous because you're just playing a game but like then you feel like you owe people something right you like owe them the explanation you owe them your effort you owe them like the best production value or at least like the most reasonable production value you can like give them and you owe it to them to give them like a good show and so like sometimes it just gets so hard like uh, like let's say you got like you got low viewers or no one's talking in the chat and like those moments, I don't know, I'm not really, I'm not strong enough for them. I just like lose my interest and want to do something else. And then I, I think I realized that I, it's not, it's just, I can't do it. It's not for me. As much as the, like, I have so much fun when there's like a lot of people in the chat, it's popping off, people are talking and I'm playing magic. I have a lot of fun, but I can't handle the downs and I can't uh, handle uh, doing it like the grind of it. Uh, so it's not for me, but I think, is it worth it to stream is a lot depends on your goals. Like is if like, let's say your goal is to like make minimum wage, but do something you absolutely love. Like then maybe streaming's for you. If you have the talent, you have the luck and you uh, give it like your best effort. Maybe that is something for you. And that sounds like it could totally be worth it. Cause it could give you like this exponential value in your happiness, the utility of happiness, which matters a lot. But then, like, if you're someone who, 
like needs to make more money or they're in a position in their life where they want to buy a house or they need like that financial stability to reach their goals and those goals are the things that can help uh, them reach that happiness then i think streaming is probably not going to work for you because it's not going to give you those things for a long time if ever and you have to understand that when you're getting into it i think and it's a, a tough pill to swallow when you might have to just like make almost no money for for quite a while before you can really break onto it and uh, be successful, even as rewarding as it will be, or could be, one successful. Good. That, that, yeah, that, that's a very good point. And I, I think about like the clip by clip talk talked about how you know it might be a grind to wake up at 10:30 or whatever a.m. every day, but like regular people have to. A lot of people are going to nine to five that they not don't necessarily love to to make a living. So. Um, it's like, what, what are you comparing that to? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's they just like, I feel like they missed the point of like valuing how much like <laughs> happiness matters. And I think happiness is one of the most important things in the world. It's like the ultimate goal for me in my life is to like be as happy and like cultivate as much happiness as I can. And that's like, some people don't just don't think of things like that. And I think maybe with the perspective of that or putting that in your mind that maybe you uh, could consider it as more worthwhile. Mm -hmm. uh, a quick last question with this, uh, Tangrams, are you jumping into the video production streets, whether it be streaming or making deck tech videos that I happily encourage you to make for me, actually? Um, I think if I were <laughs> to go into that, I would definitely want to do more of the youtube thing i think that's just kind of being able to make stuff on your own schedule not feel like i have to be like have my butt in my chair at you know the same time every single day and i can like never take a day off <laughs> i think that that aspect of streaming just sounds horrible to me that like that kind of grind you it i think um youtube is just sort of offers a lot more flexibility there and i think for me who's just sort of more of a more of a serious player, like less kind of focused on the entertainment maybe, more really about like learning and getting better and, and it's sort of that aspect of things. Um, I think that that suits me more. I like feel like I'm more of like a teacher than an entertainer. And uh, with YouTube, you can kind of leverage that more just because the people seeking out YouTube videos. Um, I mean, some of them are definitely for entertainment, but also I think to, to get better, you're just gonna kind of be, you know, watching videos on your own schedule at like 2X speed and really just kind of like consuming, like grinding through high level content. And I think if you're you're doing that, YouTube is the way to go. You can uh, consume a lot more content that way. So someone like me trying to reach out to those people, I would want to be putting content out on youtube so um we'll see yeah maybe maybe some deck text maybe a yeah Oxical outcome deck text sometime i think i think that that um competitive space in youtube has not been at least to me it hasn't been fully explored yet no one has really tried to go ham on making strategic content because well it's actually really hard to uh consistently make new fresh high level material you got to be because you got to be spending a lot of that playing or play testing a lot of those high level ideas and um while you're doing that and you gotta make high level content but 
like when John made his last um, deck tech series on on Neil Brand and how to play it, there's there's every now and then there's people that are leaving comments or, or thank you for making that. People are actively searching for that uh, something like that on YouTube to learn how to play that deck, and they stumble about upon John's because it's probably the only video series on the archetype and. Every now and then, there's there's a bunch of new subscribers to the face-to-face -face games channel, and I think a lot of of that is because of of me just being able to upload John's deck tech and and let it do its work basically, so people can search for it and not be lost in someone's uh, stream history or whatever. Okay, let's let's move on to some awesome legacy news. Andy, uh, you've been having some success. Give our listeners a, a lowdown on on how you've been doing in legacy. Yeah, I'm a bona fide legacy master now. <laughs> How's that? Uh, <laughs> so uh, because I qualified for the Pro Tour and uh, I work every Saturday, uh, on Sundays I have them off. And what I really want to do is play Magic. And I was like, oh, I'll play some challenges. But the only challenges available to me are the Popper Challenge and the Legacy Challenge. Now, the Popper Challenge looks miserable because that format looks like the worst it's ever been. And then the Legacy Challenge, I was like, hey, I'll start looking up some fun decks. And so I actually have been doing pretty well. I've played four, and I've top 16, top 16, top four, and uh, did very poorly. But uh, I've been doing real like well lately with Black Red Reanimator, a deck that I never thought would be like sort of my style at all. But it uh, just I just think the deck's like kind of kind of okay right now. I think it's pretty good because uh, a lot of the Force decks are playing like just Force of Wills as their permission, except for like the the miracle not the miracle deck but the Jess guy deck or whatever but they're playing like just force for their permission and the rest is just you got to beat like like they're just playing so many removal spells and astrolabes and random cards right and like you don't care about ren and six you don't care about a lot of random cards so i think it's like kind of well positioned and there's all these loam decks that have almost no chance against you so basically like anything that doesn't play force of will has almost no chance against you and then the the Force of Will decks that are a lot of colors sometimes have a lot of draws that don't line up well against you. And then there's like the Delver decks where you win, like they're, they're pretty tough sometimes. I think like the worst possible thing is like you almost never beat a Force of Will and a Surgical Extraction. And so like you just accept that you lose to those and you just move on and accept that you have like I don't know, 30% of the metagame or whatever that's not playing Forcible right now. It's actually like really high on Magic Online. And you just take advantage of it by being incredibly fast and just having turn one or two Grizzlebrand most of the time. Do you have like, any tips for, for someone that is just jumping straight into Legacy? Any tips? Um... Uh, just try try and play a good list and uh, uh, it really just depends on what kind of archetype you're playing if you're playing like a control archetype uh, I don't know make sure you have game plans I think like understanding how you want to play the games is the best thing you can do because you're not going to understand all of the play patterns and legacy right away just understand how you plan on beating certain decks like for example like let's say you want to play reanimator and you're like okay against delver decks what i need to do is like take away their one hard permission spell and then like grizzle brand them they can't beat it once it's in play and then you start thinking about like the other decks where you're like oh i'm gonna have to like board in pyroblast or 
Autumn Veils to battle these counter spells. And I, but the thing is, I don't have to go off on turn one. I can go off on turn like six. It doesn't matter against these blue decks because they're going to have all the permission on turn one anyway. So you can just wait and fire it all off in one turn and try and pressure their mana or their resources. And then, like, the aggro decks, you just want to go off, like, uh, sorry, the loam decks, you just want to go off as fast as possible and understand there's, like, Caracas that interacts with you. So I think just understanding your game plan against other decks or, like, archetypes or, like, that is kind of the best thing you can do in a format that's got so much going on. So you just have to understand, like, let's say you're an elves deck, you're like, okay, I have all these discard spells so that I know I can beat uh, the combo decks somehow. And the combo decks is like a wide array of decks. Like, So you just have to have game plans, I think is the best thing you can do with little experience. Uh, Tangrams, uh, any legacy for you in, in the recent past? Um, I've played a little legacy, I guess. My advice would be when I was kind of getting into it, I found it really helpful to watch people like good legacy streamers. That's kind of my strategy to approach any new format. So people like uh, Eric Landon, uh, Honorog, I don't can't pronounce his last name, sorry. But there's there's a lot of really good legacy streamers out there. So when I was getting into it, I was just like, all right, I'm going to like watch this guy, like watch how he kind of approaches these matchups. Um, watch how he sideboards and just kind of try to try to take that to heart. And I think you can, you can learn a new format or a new deck a lot faster by just watching someone else who's much better at you, better than you and, and kind of copying what they do. Then you can like going through it yourself and kind of making all the beginner mistakes. You can just kind of really accelerate your, your learning process. So that would be, that's kind of my that was my take learning learning legacy because I really I really don't play much of it and don't have much occasion to but I had like one tournament I had to prepare for so that was that was what I did. Right, John. John, uh, maybe a, a quick if you've been playing legacy and then let's jump into uh, the, the meat of what most of our listeners want, which is your modern brain. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm gonna echo what. Uh what david said here uh, there's a considerable amount of legacy experts that have been doing great streams um i would say that because legacy has been a long long existing format and because it tends to attract long time veterans um the information and the uh experience asymmetry will be much uh much larger the gap will be much larger when you first start so i would highly recommend just like conceptually thinking about what kind of archetypes that would fit you and, you know, just, like, go, go to their streams, go ask questions. Um, uh, Eric Landon, shout out to him. Um, he, does, he runs a great stream, and uh, he famously has said that I don't think he has he, – he doesn't think that he has any bad matchups with a, a Black Red Reanimator, but to be fair, he's also an excellent uh, a master of that uh, archetype, and I had the chance to meet, meet him at uh, JP Vegas. Uh, Cyrus Corman Gill uh, has some really good uh, Ant videos. Anorak Das used to be a master of uh, Miracles. Uh, now he's gone, going to some other uh, uh, four-color snow shenanigans and all that. But yeah, there's a lot of information out there. I'll just like start jamming, uh, start uh, reading up and just learning. But prepare to lose a lot at first because these these guys and gals have been playing Legacy, have been playing for a long time, and 
you can't expect to start winning like right away. You gotta know your deck well, and you gotta like watch um, watch the masters uh, masters and their craft, and just uh, learn from the beginning and just prepare for a pretty steep learning curve. That's my that's my experience. Right, John. Back to you. What what's the latest from the cabal? What are we working on? Did you see uh, Daniel Fournier's deck? Uh, congratulations to him. Consistently killing these tournaments, crushing them, whether it be the Chimera Gaming uh, Opens or, or the face-to-face games Opens or, or whatever tournament, it just seems like it's kind of weird to the point where I'm not surprised that he won, even though it was like a 200 plus, 200 maybe 20 plus tournament, and it's like obviously he wins. Uh, did you take a look at his necklace? Yeah, I did, and I think it's uh, I think it's kind of interesting here. Um, uh, me and Warren, a uh, friend of the podcast, Warren uh, Smith, has been have been working on uh, Arc, Arclight Phoenix uh, for a while, on and off. But we were, I, I think, we were in from the very beginning where he was. Um, but um, with Red Phoenix and Red Prowess, um, my opinion always has been that Arclight Phoenix is one of the weakest cards in the deck. You only have Faith Excluding to discard it. It's not consistent at all, and otherwise you're playing 18, 19 lands on Arclight Phoenix. It just doesn't make sense. So even before the banning of Faithless Looting, uh, my preference was to go with more Blister Coil Weird and just try to be like a Red Infect, where you have removal, you have gut shots, where you can interact with their X1s, which would be good. And the fact that um, he, he went, I, I believe he went through uh, the Kiln Fiend Crash Through package, which I think was pretty cool. Uh, I was always wondering why Kiln Fiend didn't see a lot of play, even though it's a two-drop. It has very good combo potential. And you know what? We don't really have a true aggro, creature aggro, like beat you down sort of deck net with the banning. Uh, everything has been like a Stoneforge Mystic, Karn the Great Creator, Teferi, uh, Fest, um, in my opinion. So it's nice to see this deck do well. I do think it has a place in the metagame as like a more uh, creature-heavy, combo-heavy burn deck. That, that, that's not as uh, susceptible to uh, Leyland of Sanctity or Life Gain because it can deal damage in chunks. So congratulations to Daniel. I think he made a pretty interesting call, and I think the deck uh, has potential. So you think the deck has potential even for... There's, a, there's some tournaments, like there's a Montreal MCQ uh, this Saturday, so... A decent choice, I, I guess, for the Saturday. Uh, uh, Dave, what, how, how's your modern been going? I know uh, you've, you've been on this top eight streak. You've been getting your heart broken. Uh, so how's it been going lately? Dave? Is he frozen? I think he froze, but uh, while he comes back, I'll uh, speak for him here. Um, we did have the Seattle MCQ, the... Um, the weekend before, um, where I try to expand my range by playing Valica, not Neoform. Thanks a lot, uh, Alexander and uh, <laughs> me. Um, but Dave is uh, doing pretty well, actually. Um, he was playing Urza, the Paradoxical Outcome Urzalist. And actually, like our friend uh, lost his winning in into top eight with Neoform um, against Paradoxical Outcome. So there was a Paradoxical Outcome list that top eighted that tournament. Um, for those wondering, that was won by um, Am- Amulet Titan. Um, 
and David just has been consistently doing well the PO list, and you know what? It's like starting to proliferate. Uh, I understand that on the in the game game uh, deck list, sorry arena deckless puck uh, Discord, there has been a few uh, dedicated people working in their cabal chat as well. So uh, I'm hoping we can get David back uh, for a talk about this deck because I think this deck has quite a bit of a t- potential, and more importantly, I don't think it's been. Um, uh, finely tuned, and case in point, uh, David was playing Birds of Paradise, which is like, what? So I'd love to hear what he uh, says about it, but maybe uh, we've lost him from. Yeah, um, while while I try to get him back in, John. So what happened with you with Valakut, and, and where are you at? What would you play? Would you play the Fournier list? Where's your head at uh, in terms of that? So the the reason why I didn't uh, play Neoform was, you know, like I, I'm still winning online, uh, like 60% clip, but like just conceptually, like the deck doesn't really seem really good. If everyone on their dog is doing like a Teferi, Karn the Great Creator, Stoneforge Mystic, Force Negation sort of thing, you know, where everyone's slowing down, everyone has more interactions, and it's just not a good uh, good format for Neoform. Neoform is great when uh, everyone is trying there's a boogeyman and everyone has trying to speed up to beat the boogeyman like in GP Vegas, where, uh, FYI had the highest win percentage out of all format, uh, all decks, even though the, the sample size is pretty small. Um, so Valkyrie, I think beats all the dirtly decks has inevitability. It has a reasonably fast goldfish. And I tech my deck to be good against burn and other aggro decks. So, I don't actually regret the choice of going going Valkyrie here. Not a lot of people expected it. In fact, some people were just like, uh, before we played our first uh, first turn, it's like, oh, I really hope you're not a Neoform. It's like, oh, so I guess I'm known for being a Neoform guy now. So I took a few people by surprise, I guess. But um, the deck's fine. Um, uh, the creator of uh, 18damage.com, Marshall J, won his MCQ in uh, Sacramento with the very Valakut deck that I net deck. Congratulations <laughs> to him. Nice. So, yeah. I think Valakut's actually very good. And his re- the resource, uh, his website, 18damage.com, has a lot of information about Skateshift. I would, I definitely net decked his list and his website as well. So I still, if I were to play it uh, this weekend, I would, def- I would definitely consider Valakut with a heavier emphasis perhaps on like creature removal and uh, fast decks like Daniel's uh, deck. So I don't regret it. I think Valk is still good, and you better respect it because there's not a lot of interaction that interacts with it. I love that. I love that. You know, I, of course, you've, you've heard it, me talk about on, on the table for two podcasts last episode about, well, me and Alex talked about how people brand themselves and, and, and as these archetype experts and you this is the first, the first time you plug this 18 damage uh, website you plug it up multiple times and it's kind of cool that not only do you respect his knowledge but now for people who don't know him or, or want to do the research on how good this guy is he takes down an MCQ with it and now that just furthers his brand value in terms of a uh, Valakut expert so anyone who's like looking to play Valakut to, to qualify for the PT, they're going to be, or they should be checking out 18damage.com. So good for this guy. Um, I mean, I, Andy, are, are you watching from afar? Are you? I mean, I know you don't have to play much these days, so. <laughs> I, I've played a ton of Modern Oh, Modern. whoa, okay. Yeah, I've been uh, really trying to uh, sculpt out uh, what I might potentially uh, play uh, in all the PTQs in GP Montreal, and I've been playing in uh, PTQs on Magic Online. I played uh, Tron last weekend, and it did not go well. 
Uh, and I'm I'm in a spot where I find myself often in modern until I find a deck where I just I just like everything. And I think a lot of it comes from like a decision paralysis. There's so many decks out there and none of them are perfect. And basically I keep waiting for the perfect deck, right? I keep waiting for like an Is It Phoenix where the deck's just like incredibly powerful, consistent, and uh, like my play style. And I just keep not finding it, which is it's really tough on me and I've been really struggling to figure out what to play. I've been thinking about uh, so many different things, but none of them have really got me uh, fully committed yet. And uh, it's been uh, pretty intense lately trying to figure out what to play. I've played a bunch of different decks and uh, don't like anything that much at the moment. Right. Dave, do we, do we have you back? It's good. You don't need video, but can we hear you? Uh, I believe so. Oh, do, I, do I sound okay? You sound okay. We were just Great. wondering because uh, when you came on or, or you've been tweeting about how you've had a lot of near misses, whether you've had a lot of online top fours, top eights, and, and I think you tw uh, you messaged me about a, another recent heartbreak. So so what's going on, man? What's, what's happening here? Yeah, so two weeks ago I got – Ninth on breakers, it was like a real dagger because I was I was eight and one going to the last round, and if it was paper, all I would have to do is draw, but can't draw on Magic Online, so I had to play, lost, got jumped, so that was a real heartbreak. But my deck was sweet. I was playing this Urza paradoxical outcome deck that plays a bunch of zero mana artifacts with that make mana with Urza, and then. You pick them all up with Paradoxical Outcome, draw a bunch of cards, replay them, make a bunch of mana, and just sort of like storm through your deck that way. And eventually you play like a Time Walk effect. Um, and you have like Psy Master Thopterist making Thopters this whole time. And then you just untap and attack them with like 100 Thopters. So um, been really impressed with this deck. Been putting up some great results with it. I got ninth in that tournament. I went to a paper mcq uh with john the other weekend went six and two there so like one win off top eight and um just been loving this deck i think it's great i think it like crushes pretty much everything in the format and Whoa. i'm just gonna gonna keep playing it How, is it man like what's the deck what's the other deck that you you played last time that we all thought was kind of weird it was like a tron deck with it was a different style of Tron deck, right? Yeah, so that was that was the the Tron deck with like the core tapper, right? Advantage. Right. And that was kind of a that was kind of like a gimmick deck that I was playing mostly because it had a good Hogak matchup, and um, there was a lot of Hogak then. Um, I don't think that deck wasn't like necessarily like the best or most powerful. It was just kind of contextually good. This this paradoxical outcome deck, I think, is just incredibly powerful, incredibly resilient and i can see like being a real long-term player moving forward john why aren't you playing this deck this is this is funky john john tell me <laughs> i definitely tested it and i think it has potential here um the reason why i didn't consider it for that my seattle mcq um was because i think it's a bit comp complicated to play and two there's actually like a lot of like physical logistical like nightmares like keeping track of your blue floating with Ur uh, Urza uh, pick, like, keeping track of how many um, cards you pick up with Paradox outcome uh, what are you tapping what you're not tapping etc and I, I kind of don't like thinking about that and um, also I think I, I think like, there is a bit of a blind spot for big Nana and like fast combo 
granted for the latter there's like there's very little right now like no no lunatics gonna play like neoform right now um having said that david i said that like our my friend was uh six one and uh lost his winning in against paradox the outcome one of your cabal members who had force negation like how can you play force negation in that deck anyways um i think it's really hard to like uh, outgrind an active Urza or a Psy or a Paradoxical outcome, and it just goes over the top of like a lot of like what the format's doing. So I definitely think it has potential. Um, uh, David played uh, interesting package of Birds of Paradise for the ramp and all that. And I was saying, David, that the best thing about this deck is I think the shell is like conceptually powerful, and there's still a lot to be iterated on, and there's still a lot to like perfect and to be fine tuned. So uh, I do see a lot of potential in this, and you know, you know what, I'm just gonna be watching from the sideline, and uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I would agree with all that. Um, the deck is really hard to play. I played a lot of. KCI when it was legal, and I think you kind of probably got a sense of people were complaining, like, oh, this deck is just miserable. It's, like, so hard to play. There's so much stuff to do. I think this Paradoxical Outcome deck is way harder to play in paper than KCI, so um, just kind of keep that in mind if you're thinking about picking it up. <laughs> Online is much nicer because they keep track of everything for you, but just kind of uh, not for the faint of heart, for sure, so totally understand someone not wanting to play this deck. <laughs> but, man, you're, you're always after that. Whatever. Uh, it, it doesn't stop you, at least, Dave. Um, let, let's wrap this up with, with some standard talk. Um, do any of you, have any of you been playing standard, or are you waiting for, for the new set to, to jump in here? No standard from anyone. Hello. I've been playing a little standard. Um, there's the arena, like, ladder grind. You can get to top 1,000, qualify. Oh, the, are you doing that? Um, Mythic qualifier weekend. I'm, like, kind of giving it a shot right now. Yeah. I don't have anything else going on. There's no other events, so I figured, like, may as well play some arena. Um, I'm playing Feather right now, which is, like, the only deck I've played this whole standard season. And I think it's, I think it's just really good. It's, like... You kind of have to stay on top of the meta and sort of like tweak your your sideboard because you're playing kind of this mid-range deck and you need to have the right game plan against everyone else in the format but um the card like feather the redeemed is just a just a busted magic card so i think you can't go too wrong when you have that in your deck because i i heard at one point like kethis like everyone was winning with it right and and on twitter i was like oh just won the mcq with kethis beat everyone not close and that populated my feed and then now I realized a few days ago someone told me that it's changed Esper Controls taking over and I look at MTG Goldfish surely they have Esper in terms of popularity Esper Control number one Kethis number two some sort of Golgari deck number three Mono Red number four and, and your deck the, the Feather deck number five uh, do you see like all five being viable or, or do you think one or two are clearly above the pack um it's tough to say. I think Kethis is is very good. I think it's probably the best deck. Um, Feather just happens to line up very well against Kethis. You have this sort of repeated creature removal spell, like a, a Feather-Reckless-Rage combo that just kind of locks them out. Right. So, and they have to stick creatures in order to do their thing. They, they can't really operate otherwise. So uh, Feather has this kind of unique ability to put them in the hard lock, but I think it's kind of the only deck in the format to do that i i don't have a lot of like i haven't really been following up with like the the nuances of like the esper control versus 
Kethos deck. I assume if you're playing Esper and you like really just like desperately want to beat Kethos and don't care about anything else in the format, you can probably you know put together a 75 that'll that'll be favored versus Kethos. Um, whether you can do that like while you know still beating anything else in the format, I'm kind of kind of skeptical of just because Kethos is so powerful, so resilient, and you just sort of need to devote so many resources to fighting it to have a shot um i'm not sure esper can do that but i think in general unless you're you're someone like me who's been playing just like nothing but feather for the last three months and sort of knows the deck in and out i think you're probably just best